The slow rolling legalization of cannabis in the United States is providing an interesting investment opportunity. Since COVID, cannabis sales are up tremendously. The legal industry is growing as more states legalize medicinal and or recreational use. As large licensed multiple state cannabis operations grow, they are increasingly cash flow positive. All of this despite having no access to the U.S. banking system and paying a particularly high effective tax rate, frequently north of 70%. In the beginning of 2021, banks, wary of unclear federal law, began to prevent their brokerage clients from investing in public cannabis companies. And since that time, we've seen the stocks in these companies fall by over 80% in many cases. At the same time, fundamentally, the businesses continue to grow and thrive. As we speak, the lame duck Congress is considering legislation that would open up the banking system to state licensed cannabis companies. My guest today, addressing the state of the industry, is Boris Jordan. Boris is the founder and chairman of Cureleaf, the world's largest cannabis company. Prior to his current focus in cannabis, Boris has had a storied career as a banker in emerging markets in the 1990s. Boris Jordan, thank you so much uh, for being our guest here on Biltmore View. Uh, it's exciting times for cannabis, and uh, really honored to have you join and and share your insight. I guess if we just kind of launch into it, I'm very curious where we stand currently on the Safe Hope legislation. Well. Um it's very good to be here, first of all, and I'm happy to do this. Um, well, it, as you know, we are in the throes of uh, uh, the lame duck session, uh, and the issue of uh, safe banking changes literally every hour, and I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that. Um, you probably saw that stocks have run about 30%, 40 uh, in the last uh, two weeks in anticipation. Today they fell 13, well, at least Cureleaf and GTI, the two biggest companies, fell 13% today, all because, uh, all because McConnell came out and said what he always says, and that's that he dislikes cannabis and wouldn't vote for it. Um, I, I, I think it's very difficult for me to tell you right now what, how this is going to work out. There's basically three vehicles uh, to pass this. The one is the NDAA, attaching this as a rider to the NDAA, which is a must-pass bill. The second one is the Omnibus, or the Omnibus Mini, depending on which way they decide to go with the budget. Um, uh, and that's a second way to do it. And of course, a third way to do it, and there's been some talk today about this, and that's just putting the safe banking up for um, uh, a vote uh, you know, on the, on the Senate floor, which personally I think is the best way to do it, instead of hiding it in all these bills. Um, and that way we'll really know who's for it and who's against it. I, I personally think that if it's, if it's the safe that's uh, being currently considered, I think it has plenty of bipartisan support to go through. But, you know, I'm not the, uh, uh, I'm not the uh, as, as, as one of the senators put it to me, he said, Boris, you, you worry about getting everybody on side with cannabis, we'll worry about the vehicle on how to pass it. Well, the, the law is written now, safe banking, it's agreed 
on a bipartisan basis. The Department of Justice has agreed it as of this morning. So everybody's in agreement on safe banking. The problem is, you know, what's the vehicle to pass it? And we don't know. Well, aside from how it's passed, let's say it does pass. What does this mean for cannabis companies if it does pass? Listen, I think it's a first step. The first safe banking law, at least the versions I've seen, is not all-encompassing and ideal, right? So it's not a full legalization of the sector. It's not even potentially a full legalization from a financial perspective. What it is is a first step. There's no federal cannabis legislation uh, today that exists, period. So this would be a first piece of federal legislation that recognizes the existence of an industry which is already doing almost $30 billion of revenue uh, uh, in, in, as a sector, and 39 states are participating in it. Um, what it will do, however, uh, at a minimum, is it will reduce the cost of capital. It will give uh, banking access to everybody in the sector. Um, it is likely to allow uplisting at a minimum in Canada, so from the CSE to the TSX. Uh, and it is likely to give safe harbor to investors to invest in the sector. So those are the things that I think will happen quickly. Um, and then I, I suspect that the U.S. exchanges will be under considerable pressure. And I think eventually they'll allow uplisting to them, even in the current draft. But I think that would take probably at least 12 months. Um, uh, and they'd probably be in consultation with FinCEN as to whether they can or can't do it. So the other three items I had were uplisting to U.S. exchanges, which you covered, uh, rescheduling, um, and then finally 280E. So, um, the, so 280E and rescheduling uh, fall in the same category. So safe banking does not resolve the 280E problem, which is a tax problem. Uh, and, and just to define to your audience what 280E is, 280E basically doesn't allow uh, 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 cannabis companies to write off their expenses, right? So that's that's the that's the problem, and so our effective tax rate is call it around seventy percent. So we are paying a very, I mean, Cureleaf uh, uh, in the last two years, a company that I'm a founder and a chairman of, uh, paid three hundred and forty million of cash taxes over and above its regular state and federal taxes. So just to give it the perspective, so our tax rate is around 70%, and that's for everybody in cannabis. Um, and, and that it can only be resolved through either legislation or a rescheduling of cannabis from Schedule 1 to minimum Schedule 3. Now, as you, as you probably heard, the president has uh, signed a bill for research, and he has also instructed the HSS to, together with the FDA, uh, the ATF, and the DEA, to review the scheduling of cannabis uh, with the intention of rescheduling it to Schedule 3 or better. Uh, and that would then automatically get rid of the 280 tax provision. What do you think, or what are you hearing, is the timing of rescheduling? So I, I, I can't tell you what I've heard. I can only say what I've heard. I've heard mm -hmm. the intention is to do it before the, mid, but before the next presidential election. So I've heard they're trying to get something in the second or third quarter of 24. That makes sense. And uh, just to summarize what you're saying is that rescheduling, if it went to uh, three or better, that would clean all of this stuff up just alone, it sounds like. Well, it would clean up 
280E. I don't know whether it cleans up. I have to look at whether it cleans up banking. But mm -hmm. I suspect if it cleans up 280, it probably cleans up banking. However, it doesn't solve the issue of, of, of uh, interstate commerce. That would have to be a different piece of legislation. But it is most, I know for sure it takes care of 280E and most likely probably takes care of the banking issue. Got it. So, uh, again, we've really launched into a whole lot of jargon and, and legislation and all of that. I, I'm curious, a simple question. If all of this goes through, what does it mean for the bottom line of cannabis companies between well, today and, let's say, tomorrow I wave a wand and everything happens? Well, the, the most cannabis companies are now, depending on what uh, you know, sort of what uh, um, growth part of their growth cycle they're in, are uh, break even, even with 280E. So I would argue that most of the top five next year will be slightly net income positive and will be most likely free cash flow positive, albeit not a lot because of the uh, 280E tax. But a little bit, right? So what that would do is, in effect, it would make us, uh, let's use Cureleaf because I know their numbers very well. Uh, as an example, uh, Cureleaf would add, based on this year's numbers, $170 million of both cash and net income to its numbers, right? So considerable, let's just argue. I would argue that uh, based on next year's numbers, you know, it could be a, a substantially profitable company. I mean, making hundreds of millions of dollars of net income. So if it, if that were to happen with greater cash flow from this reform, uh, looking forward, what are the best opportunities for growth with that cash flow? Well, again, I, I think that um, uh, the U.S. So. I look at growth in this sector in, 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 in sort of two areas, geographic and population uh, sort of TAM. So when I speak about the population, so mostly the cannabis industry today, I would say 90% of the customer base are historically traditional cannabis users that have been using cannabis, whether it was legal or illegal, for the last 30 years, right, or 40 years. That's the, or new entrants like, you know, uh, you know, college kids and stuff like that that, that, that are now using uh, cannabis in a legal way. Um, I would argue, however, though, that for companies like Cureleaf, what we're really looking at is expanding uh, that uh, customer base beyond the traditional user by introducing new form factors and therefore um, attracting new people. So as an example, a lot of elderly people now are using cannabis and, and different products in cannabis for sleep and anxiety. Um, you know, my uh, 86-year-old in-laws use it for sleep um, uh, because it helps them much better and it doesn't give them a hangover like uh, melatonin does, for instance. So you're getting more and more of that kind of customer. You're getting uh, housewives that are starting to uh, look at the drinks in the cannabis industries to replace wine or high sugar content things. So seltzers are being are popular. For instance, Cureleaf has a seltzer. I know some <coughs> excuse me, some of the other companies do as well. So that's becoming a new form factor. So <coughs> that's one area of growth is expanding the the, the amount of consumers 
that from away from the traditional cannabis consumer to those consumers that use, uh, uh, you know, drink alcohol uh, and use other products, uh, wellness products. That's where I see it going. The next area of growth really is geographic spread, right? So new states that are coming online that are adopting adult use, that's going to give step level growth for the cannabis industry in the U.S., but also new markets. So, for instance, both uh, my, my, my investment company, Measure 8, we've invested in European assets now because we see that as the next frontier. That's where the U.S. was five years ago is where Europe is now. And Europe is a market that is literally twice the size of the U.S. market in terms of cannabis use because it's 720 million people in, in, the, in the European fold. And it's estimated the cannabis market is 260 billion versus the U.S. market of 100 billion. So it's a very large market. Uh, Germany is about to go adult use. We just invested in uh, uh, as part of our VC portfolio, one of the most technologically advanced companies in Germany uh, that is uh, attacking that market share or with about a 10 or 15 percent market share in the medical program. And Germany, just think about this, Germany is going to be the largest adult use recreational market in the world because it's good. Canada is a 35 million uh, market, but Germany is an 82 million person market with a 29% penetration rate of cannabis. So Germany, when it flicks the switch in 24, will be the largest adult use cannabis market in the world, where it's federally legal. And you know that's where we're investing now uh, from Measure 8's perspective, um, because we think that's a very, very attractive market. So besides continuing to invest in US technology, we're doing a lot of investing into technology companies, things like that. We're also investing in Europe, because we see that as a major, major growth uh, potential over the next uh, five years. So it's interesting. Germany will be the largest uh, federally legal market yeah. uh, until such time, I suppose, as the U.S. has federal legalization. Yes. Um, how do you foresee federal legalization uh, and federal regulation as it relates to the current state regulation? Um, I, I, I personally think that uh, the U.S. is going to liberalize in, 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 in pieces. So we're going to get, say, banking first. Then I think we're going to get 280EE is going to get removed. Then I think we'll probably get interstate commerce. So I think, well, so, so 280 will be uh, together with descheduling. So I think we start with banking. Then we get descheduling to schedule three or four. That removes the 280E, the, the you know, sort of very aggressive tax rate. Then I think we, we probably wait for some kind of rule writing from the FDA. Then I think you might get interstate commerce as the next step. So I think it's a step type situation as people get more comfortable with cannabis as a product. And we've seen this on the state level as well. A lot of the states come in and they start with very, very, uh, uh, I would say, um, uh, uh, programs that are very limiting. Uh, and then they liberalize those programs as, as, they, as they see that those that one, there's demand, and two, that there's, there isn't anything sinister about cannabis. As a matter of fact, it's a product that is safer than alcohol or many, certainly many pharmaceutical products that are being used today uh, in, in the industry. So I, I think, listen, there's a major stigma around cannabis. We all know that. It started with reefer madness in the you know 1960s and 70s. And I think that we have to get over a lot of our legislation 
legislators come from that era still. And I mean, just think about who's legislating. I mean, Grassley's 89, McConnell's 82, Pelosi's 80, Biden's 80, um, Schumer's 76. Just think about their experiences with cannabis, right? Uh, their experiences in the 1960s, that's what they remember. And that's why there is all this hesitancy um, uh, on, uh, on, on uh, legalization. And yet the public, uh, I I don't, uh, perhaps you remember the statistics, but it seems like the public has more uh, agreement on legalization of cannabis than just about any other controversial issue. The irony behind cannabis and the United States public is that it's probably the most bipartisan issue we have in the country. We're divided on almost everything except cannabis. I mean, 77% of the population is for full legalization. 93% is for medical legalization. It's an amazing number. Now, you tell tell any other aspect of our political world in the United States, you don't get numbers like that. And yet, it's being held up by, you know, five octogenarians in the Senate. I mean, the House has passed legislation legalizing cannabis seven times. Seven times. That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, Back to Measure 8, real quick. I'm going to kind of wrap up with uh, a question about that. Um, You mentioned your investment firm, Measure 8. How, How do you approach going forward investments uh, and I know you mentioned venture, but you also do public investing as well, yeah. uh, or Measure Eight does. Yeah. Uh, how how um, how do you how does Measure Eight think about that? Well, first of all, we have unprecedented access in this marketplace due to a combination of my role as the founder of the largest cannabis company in the world. And my background as an investor for 30 years, that's what I've done. I've invested and built companies. And we've been in the sector. We see almost everything that goes on in the sector. So we have really strong uh, access to information. Um, and and I'm not the trader of the – right? My background and my specialty is venture capital and private equity. I have a partner whose name is Justin Ord who runs – the liquid portfolios on our behalf. So the one thing that you can be comfortable with is uh, I I don't opine on what stocks he has to buy and sell because that's not my background. However, I'm the largest um, investor in that fund. I firmly believe in what he does and, and what he's doing. Uh, and what we really look for, I can talk to you on the venture side, is we're really looking for really interesting assets um, that, that will either play a significant role in, in, in either geographically or in the product areas in their markets with very strong management teams that we can back and, and help them build these businesses. I've spent 30 years building companies. I built five multi-billion dollar companies myself as founder and CEO. And I use that experience to help a lot of the young entrepreneurs that we're investing in on the VC side. And we've had a very good run at that at, at Measure 8. On the, on the, on the, um, uh, on the uh, liquid portfolio side, I think what, what Justin and I'm going to really be very uh, very broad about this because it's not my area of expertise. But I think he's trying to get as much 
return as he possibly can at the same time keeping a lid on risk, right? So he's not overexposing our investors to risk. And so I think that's, I mean, obviously cannabis in and of itself is a very volatile sector because of all these different constant legislative changes and, and what you call it. But frankly, I see the, that as the real big attraction, right? I saw this in emerging markets back in the 1990s, right? I'm an early emerging markets investor. That's what I did. You know, I started out at big firms like Credit Suisse and Kidder Peabody and people like that. And then I moved on and I started running money myself. And, and the thing that you want to do is you want to be in markets that have higher barriers to entry, which cannabis definitely does, but that are scalable over time and are going to become very, very big markets. And cannabis is exactly that, right? You have higher barriers to entry due to the regulatory issues and you have markets that these, this is going to be 500 billion, 600 billion global, you know, consumer goods category. And what we're seeing about this category is that this category is becoming a staple. People are buying it right downturns, they're buying it up, right? This industry is performed. If you think about all other consumer goods companies during this recession, they haven't fared like cannabis. We continue to grow. We continue to expand. I mean, Cureleaf has grown, and the sector has grown almost 100% cargo over the last four years since they've gone public. I mean, that's incredible results, and very few people know that this sector even exists out there. And that's what I like, because when everybody learns about the sector, it's too late. It's probably the time to sell. So my whole view is get in early, establish yourself Pick the right companies, do your due diligence, understand what you're investing in, and, and you will be rewarded for that. Well, we certainly hope uh, our investors at Biltmore and our families uh, are rewarded uh, in, and uh, enjoy all of the advantages of this space that you pointed out. Um, Boris, I, I really wish you and Cureleaf and, and Measure 8 uh, tremendous success going forward. Hopefully, we'll be there right with you. Uh, and good luck o- over the coming weeks of, of this lame duck. I oh. hope it's not so lame. We're, we're negotiating it hard. Let me just tell you, make you and your, your uh, family offices comfortable. In everything I, in everything I attract people to invest in, I'm always the biggest investor in that sector. So I put my money where my mouth is. I've probably got over $500 million invested in the cannabis sector. Uh, and so I am personally, so I am very, very committed to the sector. And you can count on the fact that uh, I've got a lot of skin in the game to, to make sure it's successful. And I've got a great team. I'm surrounded by great people. I'm very lucky that way. And thank you for uh, the fact that we get to work with you guys. And I appreciate the time that you gave me. Thank you. Thanks. 